people of the congregation of the Lord. As your pastor, one of my callings before God is to instruct the congregation in a balanced spiritual diet of every portion of Holy Scripture. That is what I've sought to do by God's grace. And in the course of meditating upon that and praying about it, the Lord, I believe, has led me to begin a new series in this Gospel according to Luke. Luke is a wonderful book to study. It sets forth in a marvelous way the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in uh, recording for, it, for us, as it does, the history of his miracles, his parables, and all the other things that his, uh, his followers witnessed, I trust that it will help us, whether young or old, whether for the first time or whether afresh, to give great attention to this book that the Holy Spirit has inspired. I'm also recognizing that in this month of December, our free reform churches typically set apart a, a series of sermons in the month of December for reflection upon the incarnation and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Not that we claim this is required by the word of God, but that it is our joyful liberty as Christian people to reflect upon the incarnation, and this is an edifying and appropriate time of the year to do so. And so in the Lord's providence, we find that in both cases, this first chapter of Luke's gospel is most fitting for us to meditate upon this afternoon. And by way of introduction, let us consider the introduction that Luke himself provides to us in the first four verses. I mean, briefly uh, look at the first verse, for example, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things that are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know this, the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, from the early history of the church, even from the church fathers like Irenaeus, you find that this book is ascribed to this man, Luke, who is indeed one of the early companions of the Apostle Paul. He has a Latin name, and so he is typically understood to be a Christian convert from the Gentile nations, not from a Jewish background, and so he's the only biblical author who's not Jewish. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul describes him as the beloved physician. He was a doctor, children, and so he, in the course of his duties as a physician, had a great attention to detail, which the Holy Spirit used in order to uh, collect the eyewitnesses 
that were necessary to um, communicate the person of our Lord. Likewise, he is described as a most faithful Christian. He was with the Apostle Paul even late into his life during his final imprisonment right before he was executed. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Only Luke is with me. How may we know that this is the word of God that is before us, that Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit? Well, the very testimony of the Holy Spirit shines forth through this book, as any Christian will testify that the wondrous things revealed could not come from a mere human being. But likewise, you may see that in this introduction, he ascribes this work as being in conjunction with the ministers of the word, verse 2, who are also eyewitnesses, which is ministers of the word would have been a normal way to describe the apostles who spoke with the divine authority of Christ himself. And likewise, in the Apostle Paul's writing of 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, verse 18, if you consult that, you see that he actually cites Luke 10, verse 7, as the word of God, as scripture. And we may take this to be indeed a profitable thing to receive, not only because it is the word of God, but because there was a, a special care which the Lord used through this man in order to collect various accounts of the person and work of Christ, which were lacking in other records. If you read carefully the first four verses, he's not speaking of the other apostles or the other scriptures, no. He's speaking of non-inspired Christian writing, which was well-intentioned, but it didn't quite capture the fullness of the reality of who Jesus is, what he had accomplished, what his message was, and so forth. Those witnesses having been lost to history, God has preserved this for our instruction. And the first story that is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, it sets a scene for all that will follow. It begins the coming of Christ with the record of how it was that the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, the prophet John the Baptist, came to be born. And it's this that we will give particular attention to in this message under the theme, A Servant of God Falls Silent. A Servant of God Falls Silent. We will consider the first verses up to verse 25. So verse 5 to 25, we'll say, and we'll see three things. First, a priest, second, a visitation, and third, a chastening. A priest, a visitation, and a chastening. Well, children, I'm sure you understand what a priest is. This was one of the very special jobs which had been appointed by the Lord under the Old Covenant. Special people among the Jewish nation, the Jewish church, were anointed by God and set apart for the public worship of God, for the offering of sacrifices, for the teaching of the people, and as well for prayers and intercessions 
for the people. A very special job. And here the story begins, as it does, in those early days of the New Testament era as a special priest by the name of Zacharias comes on the scene. Notice how this is described in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So a man named Zechariah had the role of a priest, and his wife's name was Elizabeth. This was in the days of Herod, when the people of God were in a very bad spot. A very bad man by the name of Herod had come to be king, who was not even uh, of the tribe of Judah, let alone of the line of Jesse and David. No, he was an Edomite, and at that he was a very wicked man. And the people of God had uh, welcomed the Romans into their lands for diplomatic and strategic reasons and come under their power in such a dramatic way that now they are just an appendage of the Roman Empire. In these days, the prophets had fallen silent. There was no word from heaven from the days of Malachi, which we read, the last words of the Old Testament, to now. God had not spoken except through the ordinary means of of his word for the most part. And so it was that it was a dark time also spiritually. There was a decay and a rot within the church as false teaching had taken the place of the purity of God's word. And yet it was not always that way with everyone that is. Among the people of God, that church of the Jews, there was a faithful remnant. And certainly this man, Zacharias, and his wife, Elizabeth, were numbered among them. You notice how it says this in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Blameless. I found Matthew Henry's commentary to be very helpful in this chapter, so I'll be citing a number of things that he said about this. Let me just note what he uh, mentions about verse 6, which we just read. Herein, though they were not sinless, yet they were blameless. Nobody could charge them with any open scandalous sin. They lived honestly and inoffensively as ministers and their families are in a special manner concerned to do that the ministry be not blamed in their blame. So he draws the principle there that those who would serve the Lord, particularly in an office, well, their calling is not only to be blameless, but also that they rule their families and that their families also be walking according to the ordinances of the Lord. Immediately, we all recognize we are sinners and we desperately need the grace of God to be at work in our families in order that we, like this Zechariah, may be blessed of God in the way of faithful obedience. And not only for office bearers, but for every Christian. Is it not our desire where the Holy Spirit works in our souls to fear God and to keep his commandments? I know it is so for you, brother. 
I know it is so for you, sister. And let this be a lesson to us that the Lord, by his grace, may enable such faithfulness and may indeed bless us, even in times of great darkness and spiritual apostasy such as existed then and exists now. The Lord will yet bless his people, particularly when found in the way of obedience. But note that there was a unique affliction and sorrow that was visited upon this righteous couple. It says in verse 7, And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. Now here was a sorrow that was also common to the godly of the Old Testament. Maybe children, as you've been studying the book of Genesis in your homeschool co-op, maybe you remember that Sarai, later called Sarah, was also an older woman who desperately wanted to have children, but she and her husband Abraham had to wait many years upon the Lord. You see that repeated in the life of Rachel. You see it repeated in the life of Hannah and others. It's a reminder, isn't it, that not everyone who has great sorrows also in their personal lives when it comes to wanting to have children but can't, or wanting to get married but can't, or wanting something else to come together and it doesn't seem to happen. It's not the case. not the case that it's because the Lord's love and grace is withheld. Indeed, God's ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts. There was a purpose, a purpose for the sorrow in their lives that would resound unto the glory of God and the good of his church. So it is also our uh, role, brothers and sisters, when there is sorrow in our lives, when maybe we are seeking God's help for something that we yearn for, even in our family lives, perhaps praying for someone that we hold dear, there's not an immediate fulfillment do not take from that that the Lord will not answer what he does not hear. As the story bears out, there may be a purpose beyond what we understand. And whatever the Lord may have in store, we bow under his will and say that his ways are good. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, we read Further on, that indeed, in the midst of their sorrow, yet Zechariah was continuing to be faithful in his calling. We see that as we read on here in verse 8. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now, some important things to gather from that. It, it does appear that this would have been the Sabbath day under the Old Covenant, the seventh day, Saturday, as that was the appointed time for worship at that time. And that would account for why there was such a large multitude gathered to honor the worship of God. And this is not the great high priest who is appointed to go into the Holy of Holies. No, this is, 
This is, however, within the, the grounds of the temple, and it is uh, done in uh, worship of God according to his commandments and offering a offering of incense before God. And it does seem, comparing scripture with scripture, that the incense that was to be offered up as it, it rose up into the air, it was to be a a sort of visible sign of the prayers of the Lord's people ascending up into heaven. And so this was not just to be done as a tradition. No, it was in order to guide the people in their spiritual duties, to be continually praying for the Lord's blessings. And in those days, the greatest blessing that they were hoping for, that they were yearning for, was the coming of the Messiah. What is it that we see here, right? As the long night of the silence of the end of prophecy comes to a close, in the midst of that darkness and the apostasy, we have here the faithful remnant of the Lord gathered in the place of faithfulness and pleading the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. What great instruction we have from this, brothers and sisters. Is it not to be the case that we should take this lesson, that we must be diligent and fervent in prayer? Oh, indeed, what have we witnessed today? Indeed, many blessings from the Lord's grace. The preaching of his word, the reading of his word, the sacrament administered just this morning. But should it be the case that we just go through the motions and do not mix our worship with fervent prayer? We cannot expect the Lord would bless our own souls. And more to the point, if we would have great desires that we would lay before God, that he would work in our families, that he would grow our congregation, that he would save people in our city, that he would turn the tides of history to do great things in our generation. Can we really say we desire such things if throughout the week we are not taking opportunities to fellowship with believers, to also pray with them and individually? Individual prayer, family prayer, prayer gatherings as a congregation. Here are the things that mark a people that have become serious with God, that become earnest for his working in our lives and in our generation. May God find us to be such a people as this. Well, as far we've seen instruction about this priest, Zechariah, what he was doing, what he was up to, being faithful and yet having these sorrows. He could not have children with his wife, Sarah, uh, his wife, Elizabeth, I should say. And so we come to our second consideration, a visitation, a visitation. You know what a visitation is, don't you, children? Maybe you have an elder's visit where the elder and the minister come to, to see how your family's doing. Well, here we have another kind of messenger from the Lord, not just an elder or minister coming, but rather a messenger from heaven, an angel of God. Look how it is in verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
Now, if the Lord gives us grace to persevere through this entire book of Luke, here is something that you're going to find challenging. That we are steeped in our culture in so much naturalism, materialism, rank unbelief about the supernatural, that when the Bible presents to us the glorious realities of the unseen spiritual realm, it can seem as though it is idle tales to the heart of unbelief. But there's nothing more rational or sober-minded than to recognize that there are powerful spirits created by God which are involved in the affairs of human beings. Righteous angels follow God and unrighteous angels, the demons of hell and of Satan, each involved in the affairs of this world in more ways than perhaps we immediately recognize. Here we have an angel that comes on the scene. Can you imagine? There you are conducting your ordinary business, your job, your worship. You're laying the sacrifice on the altar. You are causing the incense to go up. And then there is an angel. An angel. Appearances is not quite uh, described for us, perhaps in the figure of a man, as the angels that appeared before Christ's tomb. However it would be, it would be a, a shocking thing, a terrifying thing. The, the unseen realm is broken in and there is an angel. In Hebrews chapter 1, it describes the great power of these spiritual beings. In Hebrews 1 verse 7, of the angels he saith, who make his, maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Their power is so great that it, it can consume us like little twigs or, or leaves in a flame. So great is the power of the angels. And, and involved in the affairs of this world, it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 14, that they are the watchers, the watchers. They observe and watch things. And where we speak here of the good angels, the unfallen angels, as Jude calls them, the elect angels who serve God, well, they, uh, they're ones who have a particular care and watchfulness over the people of God. You see it in Matthew 18 and verse 10 where Christ says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So, so great is the care of the angels of God for the people of God that uh, Christ can issue such a warning. Or we read in the morning uh, passage as well of their attentiveness also for the worship services of the Lord's people. In 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. The angels even witnessing gatherings like this. So we must understand that this is a very solemn event and one that should make us pay attention. As God has sent such a messenger as this, it is not for any uh, mere uh, happenstance. No, it is something that should bring us to attentiveness. But let us also recognize this, that it is uh, a sign that the realities that stand before us are not seen to the naked eye always. 
Indeed, we need faith in the word of God to rightly discern the signs of the times, to rightly discern the flow of history, and to rightly live before the face of God. But now let's hasten on and consider something of what this messenger says in his visitation. His visitation. In verse 12, And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Well, we can hardly blame him, can we? Fear at the sight of this angel, this heavenly messenger. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Well, we should stop right there. Thy prayer is heard. Imagine how often he had prayed with his wife, Elizabeth, for a child. How long they had been laid before their cares before the Lord. Well, now that they are in old age, I can't imagine that they were still praying. Probably they'd long given up hope. Long ago set aside any uh, hope that those prayers would be realized. And yet God speaks as though he had just been praying specifically for that. Listen to what Matthew Henry says here. Prayers of faith are filed in heaven. Interesting. They are filed in heaven and not forgotten. Though the thing prayed for is not presently given. Prayers made when we were young and coming into the world may be answered when we are old and going out of the world. Striking thing. We can sometimes have such small faith and say, well, if the Lord does not respond right away in the way that we ask, well, then obviously he hasn't heard. Not so, Christian. Every prayer offered in faith in the name of Christ Jesus is heard. And God has a good reason for delaying the fulfillment of prayers quite often. How often has it been that the prayers for the salvation of children, even when they are, they are wayward, are not often realized, even within the parent's lifetime. And yet the Lord can realize those prayers later on. How is it? that you can have all of these prayers throughout all of the old covenant era for the coming of the Messiah. Read the Psalms. It's saturated with yearning and desires for the coming of Christ Jesus. Are those prayers just forgotten? Are they not heard? No. Each one filed, each one cataloged in order that when God displays his awesome majesty, it may reveal all the more his power and greatness and worth. So it is in this place. His prayers were heard. And so the messenger uh, testifies of this. And then he goes on, And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Well, a common enough name. What does the name John mean? Well, it means grace. Grace. A striking thing that the coming of Christ Jesus and of his herald John the Baptist should be attended with this, the name Grace, the name John. Verse 14, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Good tidings of great joy, as we read later on in this book of Luke. Wondrous things are promised here with the dawning of the new covenant era. 
The Lord's wondrous, gracious character shines forth in his goodness unto men. Every cup of water that we drink testifies of God's goodness. Every blessing of friends and family, food and shelter testifies of God's goodness. We ought to thank God for it. But how much more the joy that is shed abroad in our hearts upon the working of Christ in our generation. Where he has come, gladness comes in his wake, for he is the prince of peace. So the herald speaks in this way, joy, gladness at the coming of Christ's forerunner. Verse 15, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that not in the sight of men will he be celebrated, not that all men will speak well of him, but that he will be great in the sight of God. Isn't that what would be a wonderful thing for any parent to learn about their children? Not that they will be wealthy, not that they will be rich, not that they'll have a successful spouse. No, they will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Because the fact that he won't Drink alcohol mean that no Christian is allowed to drink alcohol? No. What that means is he had a special calling as a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a special servant of God who would testify that he is set apart to God because he would not drink alcohol. So it was. He denied himself in that way, not only not becoming drunk, because drunkenness is a sin for anyone, but he wouldn't even drink alcohol in any measure at all, as a special sign of the Lord's faithfulness to him. And so, we have this, but also the next part of the verse is most striking. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. This is going to feature prominently in the story, as especially Mary comes on the scene. But I just want to note it now that the special anointing unto his office and calling as a prophet, this man, John the Baptist, it begins even from his mother's womb. And a couple things may, may follow from this, and that is the full humanity and dignity of every child in the womb. That's one thing. You're not ashamed say that every child from the moment of conception is an image bearer of God and where they are an elect child they are appointed to eternal salvation in Christ and for this reason the holocaust of abortion the intentional killing of a child in the womb is murder a heinous sin in the sight of God and so we may say that whether it's done in a clinic or whether it's done in a hospital, whether it's legal or illegal, whether it's done through chemicals or pills or whatever it is, every image bearer of God is worthy of dignity, respect, and protection from the law of the land. And as God spoke to the Lord's servant Noah, whosoever sheds the, mud of the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, murder, is murder and des deserves a due penalty. 
But the central thing that we may learn here is also the abundant grace of God for our children. Where even a child is lost, even in the womb, if a child dies before it can be born, we do not conclude that because it could not mature and grow to years of age, that for that reason that child was lost because they didn't make a confession of faith. I remember reading one of my Baptist brothers who argued that no, he believed that all children of believers are lost even where, um, where they are the children of believers because, well, clearly they weren't old enough to place their faith in Christ. What I would simply say is our Baptist friends who would hold that view or anyone else who would argue that, they simply need to read the Bible. God has the same freedom to save children in the womb as he does at any other age. We are saved by grace through union with Christ, and that may be worked in uh, the soul of a newborn child, even from conception. And I would say that this is not in itself proof for infant baptism, but I would say that taking all things together, it ought to be factored into that discussion. And Matthew Henry is quite bold upon this point. I want you to listen to his reasoning. It is possible that infants may be wrought upon by the Holy Ghost even from their mother's womb. For John the Baptist even then was filled with the Holy Ghost who took possession of his heart betimes and an early specimen was given of it when he leapt in his mother's womb for joy, as we will see later on, at the approach of the Savior. And afterwards, it appeared very early that he was sanctified. God had promised to pour out his spirit upon the seed of believers, Isaiah 44, verse 3. Who then can forbid water that they should not be baptized, who, for aught we know, have received the Holy Ghost as well as we, and have the seeds of grace sown in their hearts. And here he cites Acts 10, verse 47. How can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as we? Now we understand Matthew Henry is not speaking of presumptive regeneration, that we assume every child of believer is regenerated and we treat them as though they're believers even where they do not show the marks of repentance or sanctification or confession of faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. However, it is an argument that God may, may regenerate some of our children in infancy. And where there are elect and regenerated children among any congregation of the Lord, there is indeed a powerful argument that they have a divine right to baptism. And where baptism exists for the comfort and good of the people of God, we ought to recognize that that takes priority, not that it be withheld from children on the chance that some of them may not be born again, but no, where there are born-again children, they have a right to baptism. So it was one of the arguments for infant baptism. But we look further at this uh, prophecy of the Lord and we see how it speaks particularly of this man, John, and what will come of him. We read in verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, a great servant of God who will turn people's hearts through his ministry 
unto the Lord, where they have been waver, wayward, where they have been unconverted, where they have been unrepentant. He will preach the law and the gospel such to bring them back unto the Lord their God. And verse 17, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready prepared a people to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you almost might miss it if you are not paying attention. But he shall go before him. He shall go before him. Before who? Well, look at the previous sentence. The Lord their God. That's why he's called the forerunner. He goes before the one who is called the Lord their God. He is uh, Gabriel speaking here about the special way in which the Messiah will indeed be God himself. God come in the flesh. Though it comes very, um, very quickly that you may not even notice it. The primary focus of this whole book is not John, it's not Gabriel, it's not anyone. It is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And were John the Baptist here, he would say, no, no, don't speak of me. I must decrease that he may increase. Let us not forget the glory of the incarnation, the coming of Christ Jesus into the world. This is the central focus. But it's described here also in the very words of Malachi's prophecy. Maybe you remember that in our scripture reading we read from the last chapter of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is directly cited by Gabriel at this point, although yeah, you'll notice that it makes it very clear that he will come in the spirit of Elijah. As in many cases, some people would insist upon a literal fulfillment that if Malachi says Elijah, the, the Tishbite prophet who confronted Ahab and Jezebel and the book of, um, of Second Kings, if he, if he is said to come back, well, that's exactly what's going to happen, a literal fulfillment. And some Christians have argued that that must be the case, that before the end of the world, Elijah will return. Well, Gabriel here is a better interpreter of the Old Testament prophecy here that is fulfilled spiritually in the coming of John the Baptist, who had a similar uh, spiritual vision for his uh, ministry, preaching the holiness, the wrath, the law of God to bring people into repentance, and even donning the garb of Elijah, as we will see, in hairy camel skin and a leather belt. Here's the description of the Lord's servant here, but the heart of this prophecy is that he turn fathers to the children, the fathers to the children, a unity among generations. Isn't that a sight that, that God is working in someone's heart? It causes you to honor your mother and your father. This is the first commandment with promise. Anyone who's a genuine Christian, no matter whether old or young, 
they will want to honor their father and the mother. And, and what happens when a father, he becomes converted? Well, he wants to govern his family and to govern his relationship with his son according to the word of God. And he, he doesn't seek to discourage his child, but he loves that child. And so they're bonded together in the will of the Lord. This began with the coming of Christ Jesus himself, but also with his forerunner. As the gospel begins to be preached in the new covenant, this pattern uh, is shining forth. That the Holy Spirit is knitting together what was broken. It is mending what has been shattered. What sin has defaced, the grace of the gospel is healing and restoring. This is also a reminder to us, isn't it? We can never just write someone off and say, oh, that person can't change. That one person is too far gone from the grace of God. That is basically atheism. Atheism to say that someone is outside of the reach of God's grace. No, this is uh, set forth right here in black and white. God changes lives. And he does so through his word and spirit, through the gospel of grace. When we notice at the very end of the prophecy that is recorded in verse 17, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That new covenant church is being prepared, not that it was fully realized through John's ministry, but no, it, it began as the, as the gospel was preached that at first beginnings of the new covenant church were established, that new covenant church of which we are members. That people prepared for the Lord from every tribe, color, and nation. It began right here with that wonderful word from Gabriel of the coming of John the Baptist. Well, thus far, we've seen not only, uh, not only a priest, but also a visitation. Finally, we will see a chastening, a chastening. And this goes from verse 18 to 25. And I suppose at this point we may be a bit hard on Zacharias and say, well, everything was going so awesome and finally he messes everything up. Well, I think if we understand how God has dealt with us and how many opportunities the Lord has given us, we may not have fared any better than poor Zacharias at this point. But let's see here what unfolds. Verse 18, and Zacharias said unto the angel, whereby... Shall I know this? Well, not exactly the best way to respond, is it, children? If an angel comes to you, a true angel from God, speaking the word of God with the authority of God, and you think, well, that's a good reason to say, well, the Lord's will be done. But no. He says, how will I know? How will I know? Well, what more could have, could have happened to send a messenger from heaven? And yet, this is the heart of unbelief, isn't it? Sometimes... Where God does amazing work, we yet contest and argue. We argue with the Lord. We play games with God, and God is most displeased with this, whether we do it or whether someone else does it. In Zechariah's case, we see what fell out from that. And the angel answering him said, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings and behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words 
which shall be fulfilled in their season. Now the word that's translated dumb in our King James Bible, it has a meaning that means not only not able to speak, but unable to hear. And as you follow later on in Luke 1, it seems pretty clear that not only will he not be able to speak, but he can't actually communicate. Otherwise, he's unable to hear and he's unable to speak. A terrible chastening, a, a kind of punishment for disregarding the word of God. We understand, don't we, that, that unbelief has consequences. It, it has consequences. When we don't speak in faith, when we don't act in faith, then what happens uh, is that we are dishonoring the Lord. Where God has spoken, that the kings of the earth fall silent, that, the, that all creatures bow before the word of God. Are you playing games with God this morning? Has God spoken very clearly what is required of you, that you trust in the Lord, that you deal with your sin in repentance and faith? And do not, do not question him. Do not quarrel with the word of God. Such things can only bring misery, whether a chastening or whether through the very loss of your soul. Never play games with God. Receive the word of God with full faith. Indeed, a much better word was spoken by the prophet Ezekiel when he was before that great dry valley bones children. You remember that God asked him a very difficult question. Can these bones live? What did he say? Lord, thou knowest. A word recognizing all uh, strength and power belongs to the Lord. Rather than, than quarreling with God, let that be our confession. The Lord can do whatsoever he has spoken. Blessed be his name. I'd also recognize this. It's interesting, and I, I'd ask you to turn with me to Malachi 2, because I was reading Malachi in preparation for this message. And I think there's something to the significance of a priest falling silent, of not being able to speak. And a few verses I want to read, just so you perhaps can see what I see here. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 4. And you remember Malachi is a prophecy that's directed towards the priests of that day who were disobeying God. And we read there in Malachi 2, verse 4, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should speak the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways. This was a prophecy given right before the heavens fell silent. As the last word of prophecy was given. Isn't it sort of an illustration here of the whole people of God as represented by their priests? They had been unfaithful. And so this nation of the Israelites, the Jews, 
They are made to have the word of God removed from them. They fall silent for all those years until the coming of Christ. And now it seems as though it's already being repaid, as though God has, has orchestrated this whole thing that, that Zechariah shows all too well, the unbelief of his people. God had said that the Messiah would come, but the people had fallen into doubt and even despair. And yet, you see how, despite the fact that the Lord could have done very harshly with them, could have, could have stamped them out forever and ever to receive his grace again, yet it's not a judgment of that nature, no. It's but a chastening. It's given in love. For these things, Gabriel says, they will come to pass. How glorious it is, Christian. You recognize it, don't you? That even despite your unbelief, despite your weakness, God deals gently with you. And sometimes his glory shines forth all the more in our weakness. So it is that we see in this uh, case as well as what falls out here in verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Well, it must have been a shocking thing for everyone. The priest comes out completely silent, unable even to hear. And what could be concluded but that God is doing something astonishing. What could it be? Well, there is this barren woman, Elizabeth, even to her old age, who suddenly conceives through a miracle baby, a baby given through a dramatic work of God. She conceives in her old age. Her reproach, she says, is taken away. And so it was not only her reproach, but that of her people, a people that had scorned the law and word of God in their unbelief. They are about to receive the greatest gift of all, the coming of the king of the Jews and the king of the nations. The king of the world has come. The Lord of glory shall appear and the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. How glorious it is, congregation, to see the Lord working. May we pray that the Lord reveal more things of this nature as we return in this series next Lord's Day. Amen.